Uh, I'd like to invite the rest of you just to open up a Bible. If you don't have one, there's, um, there's a Bible sitting right in front of you in the chair there. And if, uh, if you don't see one or can't find one, then uh, we can ha- raise your hand and, and uh, someone will get you a Bible. I'd also invite you in your bulletin today are just some notes that you can pull out, kind of follow along. Uh, we're going to cover a lot of material today. And um, probably, probably any book of the Bible is true of this, but John uh, is just a very theologically rich uh, section of Scripture. And so it's quite possible that we could have just taken the Gospel of John and spent several years uh, working through it and kind of digging down and looking at it. And um, it's always a challenge to know, you know, if we're going to go through the book of John, for instance, at what pace do we take it at? And um, what, what happens is, for those of us who are up here uh, teaching the scriptures and feeding the flock, so to speak, um, it just gets really challenging because there's great stuff in there. And you go, yeah, if we had four weeks on this chapter, then I could get into that. But what's most important? And, and we don't want to just teach and say that we've covered all the material in John. We want, to, we want to instruct. We want to allow the Word of God to be living. We want to allow the Word of God to be instructing and rebuking us and encouraging us and growing our faith. And so um, there's just, it's like fear and trepidation each week, just going, Lord, what, what do you want said out of this book? And this morning's chapter is um, uh, the, the remainder of the chapter, John chapter 5, and there's just a lot in here. Part of the reason we have community groups is because the format for Sunday mornings is very one way, isn't it? You're looking at the back of someone's head, unless you're in the front row, or unless a massive group of kids left and the men's retreat's going on, then there's a big gap over here. Um, But for the most part, you're looking at the back of someone's head, and one person is talking out this way. I may ask a question, there's a little bit of interaction, but not much. And community groups is a way to take the dialogue that's going on in here and to extend that. And to, and to grow by learning from one another. It's a great question to just say, how do you see the Scriptures? And that doesn't mean that there's just subjective truth, that we all see it our way and we all sing Kumbaya and dismiss and hope we're right. We want to get to the truth of Scripture, but here's the reality. God hasn't revealed every last nuance of truth to me so that I can then impart it to everyone. I need to learn from you. You need to learn from me. We need to grow and learn from one another. And that's part of what the whole idea of iron sharpening iron is. And that's why you get involved in a community group. I hope that as you're taking notes, I hope that if I say something this morning that you go, huh? Is that really true? Because that's not what my old church taught me. That's not what my parents told me. That's not what I always thought. Or that's not what I seem to get from this passage. You ought to write that question down. And when you go to your community group, when you go in your own personal quiet time, you ought to take that before the Lord and you ought to check it against the book. And you ought to just go, is this true? And, and guess what? You might learn something new. Guess what? You might correct me. We might see differently about, about a scripture. But that's how, that's how one grows in this. And that's how one isn't led astray into some weird cult that started with scripture and then went off in Dave's kind of weird, you know, bizarro world that, that he lives in and the whole church just kind of followed blindly along. So, the Christian church, a true Christian church, ought to be about inviting inspection, bringing things into the light, having discussion about it, and not being afraid of God's truth. And not being afraid of saying, I don't know. God's a lot bigger than that. We're going to touch on things today, you guys, that I'll just be honest with you. There is mystery in this. There is just mystery. And it's like, I go, 
God, I'm, I'm struggling to get my brain around this. And I'm called to communicate this to a group of people this weekend. So let me just, let me just say this at the, at the outset. If, if your spiritual diet as a part of Neighborhood Bible Church consists of one hour and about 15 minutes on Sunday mornings, you are woefully missing out on a massive part of what this church is about. It's going through life just one-handed and wondering why it's frustrating to drive stick and you know some of the other things that you would have to do one-handed. Without a community group, without getting involved in that, uh, it's just you're, you're, you're missing out on a big chunk of how this church is moving forward. Uh, as, as Rob mentioned, um, we, we have a men's retreat going on right now. We're, we're doing that with uh, Valley Church. And just proof that there are men in a room somewhere praising God. I thought it would be good to bring back a picture. So we're not, you don't think we're all off you know, at Disneyland or something while you're home. Uh, you know, as Rob mentioned, with the brand new newborn baby and, and all the, the work that goes along with that. Uh, we're having a great time up there. A bunch of us came back last night. Travis, our guitarist, drove back this morning. Uh, it was 38 degrees there this morning when he woke up. Um, beautiful redwoods that we're up there uh, hanging out at and um, just having a, a really good time. Steve Clifford from Westgate Church is there just challenging the guys. Um, and, and we've just had some great cabin times and whatnot. So appreciate you women um, letting and sacrificing us be in there. It's a, it's a huge deal. It's an important thing. Um, it's just some good stuff going on. So I uh, wanted to fill you in on that. I better get to my notes because we have a lot to cover and I haven't even started yet. Um, here's where we're going this morning. Uh, Jesus on trial. Uh, basically what's going to happen, there's, there's just more conflict, right? If you read the book of John and you, just, and you just kind of graft the conflict quotient, what you would see is this. You'd see this gradual uphill, you know, more and more conflict with more and more people. That's the trajectory of Jesus' life. He starts off in obscurity. He starts off not offending very many people. He starts off a little more hidden. And as the chapters go on, it just builds to this climax point. And even if you don't know the end of the story of the cross and what goes on with that, you would get a sense something's brewing. This is all going to come to a head someday, and I wonder what that's going to look like. So that's kind of where Jesus' life is going. Jesus on trial is an interesting topic because we're not really talking about a formal trial here. That comes much later in the book. We're not even close to there. But sometimes trial and public opinion are formed not in a courtroom, right? But the, the paparazzi gets a shot of someone, writes a story. All of a sudden, the, you know, websites pick up on that, newscasts pick up on that, and it becomes truth whether or not it's really factual or not. Isn't that true? We live in a culture that sweeps through uh, you know, news channels and media sources, some very questionable, and people walk around spouting off truth about a person, about a scenario, about a situation. And they may have done zero research to it, but someone got a camera shot of it, someone wrote a story, someone's blogged about it, and all of a sudden that becomes quote-unquote truth. And what happens here with Jesus is the same sort of thing. You kind of see the same thing. Long before a formal trial is ever brought to, to light, there's all kinds of opinion and truth and rumor that's going on with him. This particular conflict centers on Jesus' deity. 
And I want to look at just three things this morning, really. I've, I've given you these, these outline notes, and there's a couple fill-in-the-blanks, the first two pages. The back two are just uh, where we're going next week, a memory verse for you and your family or you personally to memorize that centers on this passage. And then just discussion questions that, 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 that you can, um, again, go through personally, but ideally with a group of people or as a family devotional. This morning I want to just cover, is Jesus really God? Why does that matter? And what are the implications for his followers? That's just kind of where we're going, just so you know. We can have a big, long theological discussion here this morning, all about the deity of Christ, and we can get into all kinds of cool nuances. But to me, I want to walk out of here, as Rob said, not having had a religious experience where we just came and garnered a few more cute religious phrases or, or learned some deeper truth. But I want to just ask that last question. How does it, how does it affect us? What does it matter to, to a follower of Jesus? Does it matter? Father, I pray that this morning you would be glorified. Jesus, as our senior pastor here at this church, we want to follow your leading in in this passage. And God, we thank you that we have recorded for us in our hands this morning the very words of Christ. And um, we pray the Holy Spirit to enlighten us, to open our eyes to truth this morning. Um, Lord, we just praise you that we can freely today look at the scriptures collectively and we pray that you'd be honored in Jesus name amen is Jesus really God this this is really the all-important question and people come to realize this early in life sometimes oftentimes people come to realize this very late in life sometimes all through a person's entire life they don't ever ponder that as a very important question But the Bible teaches this is the central question. And it predicts that one day every single knee will bow to Jesus Christ, the most powerful and honored name in all creation, as as Lord and Savior and Creator and and God. And whether we do that in this life or, or in the next life, that every knee will bow at the foot of Jesus in submission to Him. Is Jesus God is a, is a question that is, that is um, hotly debated and contested by theologians, by philosophers, by, by pop culture. Jesus is everywhere. You just begin to, you just type in Jesus to Google and start to see how it, how it comes out and sorts out. It's in movies, it's in books, it's in articles, it's in scientific studies, it's in archaeology documents. It's everywhere. The name of Jesus is, is really everywhere. There are websites devoted to pros and cons of how it's proven that Jesus is in fact not God. There's other websites that counter that and would say, here's how you can know Jesus is God. There's some talk show hosts that turn to spiritual mentors that uh, would, would have viewpoints and opinions and all kinds of scenarios about who Jesus is. And with all this talk going on, with all that's in public you know, print and all this effort that's gone into to figure out who Jesus is, one would be left wondering, gosh, I wonder what's really true. And this morning, here's, here's really what I want to do is I, I want to direct your attention to the Scriptures. The most recent, probably large pop culture phenomenon that really attacks the deity of Christ was the Da Vinci Code. And you can kind of pick your poison. You could read a book, you could watch a movie... Um, But in the Da Vinci Code, here are a few um, things that that book asserts. Dan Brown says this, that Jesus never claimed to be God. 
He also asserts that those who followed him believed him to be mortal. And the quote-unquote, he would say, fact of Jesus being divine was actually voted on at the Council of Nicaea. Now that starts to get a little bit technical, but that to me sounds like the deity of Christ is on trial right there. You see that? No, no, no courtroom, no formal judge, but that's being attacked right there. Now, the artistic license that Dan Brown forgot to mention was this, and this is what we're going to see in the Scriptures. Even a very cursory reading of the Gospels, you can pick this up. You don't have to be a theologian or a Bible scholar or a longtime church member to figure this one out. But Jesus was killed because he claimed to be God. That's ultimately why he was put to death. You read the four Gospels, they're all in agreement with that, that he was put to death ultimately because he claimed to be divine. Dan Brown would say he never claimed to be divine. Wrong. Here's the second artistic license that he kind of forgets to mention, is that his followers were routinely martyred for their belief that Jesus was God. And that was, a, that was a belief they wouldn't recant on even when their life was at stake. So his followers, his, his contemporaries, absolutely believed him to be more than mortal because they died for that belief. Historical fact. Here's a third thing. At the Council of Nicaea, which, which was an actual council that, that met, it happened nearly 300 years after Jesus lived. And by this point, countless more people who had given their lives to the church of Jesus Christ had been martyred. So now it's 300 years of people dying for the belief that Jesus was God. And it wasn't voted on 300 years after he died. It was a, it was a fact seen and experienced by people such that they were willing to die for it. Is Jesus God? Here's what I want to get at this morning. This is not just an important kind of cultural question. This isn't just an important question for a church to, to figure out, although both of those are very true. This is a massively important question for each person sitting in a red chair here this morning. It's important for you personally to really get this and know that He's God or know that He's not God. It's a personal question. It's a personal quest. The Jewish leaders of Jesus' day had opinions. We've already seen some of this in the Gospel of John. Here are some of the things that the Jewish leaders, uh, Pharisees and Sadducees and some others thought he was. They thought he was a Samaritan. Now that you're like, well, maybe they just got his race wrong. No, that was a racial slur. That was saying you're, you're a half-breed. That's who you are. You're a Samaritan. They called him demon-possessed. They thought he was insane. And then they went for the jugular and they said, well, you're of illegitimate birth. And so they just they kind of attacked him at all these different things. Um, every single one of those was, was wrong, but they had opinions about it. And they spouted off from their level uh, of authority, which in those days, uh, unlike today, pastors and religious leaders were esteemed and, and viewed as authoritative on certain things. And so they would spout off on that. You're demon-possessed. We can't deny that you're doing miracles, but by the way, the power that it's coming from is, is not from God, it's from, it's from Satan. So they had opinions. Here's, uh, here's what, what few people really allow is uh, in the quest for figuring out who Jesus is, is to just let Jesus speak for himself. To just look to the scriptures and say, what did Jesus say about himself? And so that's a great question. Someone comes to you and says, hey, I'm, I'm wondering, you're a Christian, right? Yeah, I'm a Christian. Did Jesus ever say he was God? I'm just asking, not a rhetorical question now, but a real question. How would you answer that? Yes or no? Yes. yes. 
Okay, now the follow-up question that I might ask if I were a person wondering this is, where does it say that in the Scriptures? Where does Jesus say, I am God? What's the answer to that? Yeah. Mm-hmm. All through John, there's the I am statements. Okay. Here's what, here's what someone could pin you to the wall on. If you said uh, that, yes, he says, I am God, you would be hard-pressed in our English Bible to find that translation because that's not the exact wording he used. As I already stated before, what you do as you read the Scriptures is you realize all these things that are just pointers to the fact that Jesus is, in fact, equal to God. This is one of the great passages that point to the fact that Jesus, in fact, made it crystal clear to everyone who heard in his context, I am God. And we're going to read a passage this morning. We're not going to read the whole thing because it's very lengthy. But we're going to look at a passage this morning that makes it absolutely clear that that's what Jesus said. Nowhere this, this morning am I going to read these words. Jesus Christ then said, I am God. Those exact words aren't actually found in the Bible. So someone could pin you on the wall and say, ha ha, see? But do you know that? Are you able to defend it? Are you able to look at it and say, well, here's what it is. We're going to kind of look, for that, look at that this morning. I want to kind of unpack two things for you. One is I want to unpack the theological stuff in here for you. And then on the second page of your notes is I put the word biology. Don't worry, I'm not going to give you a quiz or anything like that. But if theology is the study of God, biology is the study of life. And we're not going to break out leaf samples and all that kind of stuff. We're going to look at life and just say, how does, how does this theological framework and truth overlay into my life? And what does it matter for my life and our lives collectively this morning? So that's where we're going. Right understanding um, leads to right living. And so figuring this stuff out, knowing from the Scriptures that you can claim that promise, Jesus is in fact God, is a good thing to have. Look at um, John chapter 5, and uh, starting in verse 16. This is kind of carrying a little bit from last week. Kurt mentioned about the healing at the pool. Verse 16 says this, So because Jesus was doing these things on the Sabbath, we're going to pick up more on that later, says the Jews persecuted him. Now read verse 17 with me. Just follow along. Jesus said to them, My father is always at work. My, my father is always at his work to this very day, and I too am working. For this reason, the Jews tried all the harder to kill him. Not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was even calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. Here's what I want to do very quickly, and we could take so much time on each one of these, we're not going to do it. Hopefully it will whet your appetite to go dig a little bit deeper on this. But Jesus was equal to God um, in at least five ways. And I want you to write these in your, in your outline. The first one here in verse 17 and 18 is that Jesus was equal to God in His person. By making this statement, He was making God and Himself equal in their person. The Bible teaches very clearly a triune God. One God with three distinct persons. The Father, the Son who was Jesus Christ, and the Holy Spirit. And we can see that in a myriad of ways, and that's not what we're going to dive into 
this morning. But here we see Jesus making himself equal to God in his person. Now, the current conflict arose out of this dispute of Jesus healing on the Sabbath. Remember that? That was from last week. It was this person who was at the, at the water's edge and couldn't get in. And Jesus comes and He heals this guy. He makes him well on the Sabbath day. Now, here's what gets lost a little bit in translation for us. I put it in your, note, in your notes there. But in Exodus chapter 20, this appears to be, in the cultural norm of the day, what they had been taught this had been skewed from what God had said, but they viewed this as a violation of the fourth command out of Exodus chapter 20, which says, Remember the Sabbath by keeping it holy. On it you shall not do any work. So that's God's holy law. Jesus said, I come not to abolish the law or chuck the Old Testament, but to fulfill the law. So here Jesus shows up on the scene, breaking church norms, breaking cultural norms that had skewed into a way that said somehow healing a person, making a person well of this crippling disease, and doing it on the Sabbath was against the heart of God. Now let me just ask you, um, how many of well, I won't even go there. I'll just I'll just make this statement. Most of us have a really difficult time wondering why breaking of the Sabbath is such a big deal. Most of us here in this room didn't grow up in a Jewish household. Most of us in this room don't have thousands of years of personal and, uh, and even just um, ethnic history that says we're to, we're to keep the Sabbath and we're to separate it out as holy and we're to honor God and separate it out as part of all these yearly feasts and celebrations that God has ordained for His people, the Jewish nation, to uphold. And so when we read about people getting all worked up about the Sabbath, it's a little bit hard for us to identify. Check this out. The Jews were angry that He violated a religious rule, so they were really stirred up by the fact that He had healed on the Sabbath. That worked them into a frenzy. But look at how it kicks up a notch. They went from persecuting him in verse 16 to let's kill the guy in verse 18. You know what really got him fired up? Not only did he heal on the Sabbath, but that he then claimed divine, not only knowledge, but divine personhood by saying, guess what? God never rests. God never ceases from work. And neither do I, because I'm God. Jesus didn't blast him with all the theological arguments of saying, by the way, man has perverted the rule of Sabbath keeping into such a bizarre way that you can't even heal a guy on a Sabbath and, and, and you'd rather honor a law than heal someone. He doesn't even go there. He goes way above all that. He says, guess what? I made the Sabbath rule. I can do what I want because I'm, I'm God. And that's where it went from, let's persecute this guy, let's expose this guy for the fraud that he is by healing on Sabbath, to in verse 18, let's kill this guy because he claimed to be God. I want Carol to, to come on up here. And um, Carol, I want you to start off by explaining why you're reading this. And you know what? Can I get the handheld? Could, could you bring that up to me, Ron? Thanks. I told Ron I didn't need a handheld today. I was wrong. Um, this is Carol. And ma- many of you don't know this, but Carol um, works very hard here all week long through two walls. And um, she's... She's really what makes this church go with, uh, with all the, the, the stuff that goes on in that office. 
Um, but I, I've asked Carol to, to kind of shed some light on, on it for us Gentiles, uh, some of this stuff about the Sabbath. So go ahead, Carol. Um, to a Jewish person in Jesus' Let me click day. on. There we go. To a Jewish person in Jesus' day, the Sabbath was a deeply ingrained observance, and the Jews took very seriously God's command to refrain from work on the Sabbath. It was given in the Ten Commandments. Um, the Sabbath is intentionally living in God's spirit for 24 hours in rest and worship separate from the rest of the week. And the Bible mentions activities that interfere with that separateness, um, such as shopping or plowing or collecting wood. Um, and not even animals are allowed to work on the Sabbath. Um, but the rabbis made additional laws, um, and because the Bible is vague about how to how to observe the commandments. Some of the laws were helpful, um, such as limiting how far you could walk outside of town on the Sabbath, about 3,000 feet. Um, and this is mentioned in Acts chapter 1, verse 12. And when you're traveling, you're not really resting, so this uh, rule made sense and was helpful. But some of the rabbi's rules were a burden to the people and didn't really enhance their observance. Um, for example, the rabbis taught that you were not allowed to carry anything larger than a fig on the Sabbath outside of your local domain. And even today, Orthodox Jews will not push a baby stroller or carry even their prayer book to synagogue on the Sabbath if it's outside of their local domain called an eruv in Hebrew, eruv. Um, and in Bible times, most towns had walls and gates, and the roof would be the area within the walls. Um, um, but Orthodox Jews today, uh, since we don't have walls around our towns, they must make an roof by using plastic markers or string on buildings and telephone poles around their neighborhood. And within the roof, they may push a baby stroller or carry books um, or carry a diaper bag. Um, on the Sabbath. But outside of the Aruv, it's very difficult to follow the rabbi's rules uh, for the Sabbath. Um, and there are other rabbinic um, restrictions on the Sabbath. Um, today, in an Orthodox, a very Orthodox home, they might have dimmer switches on the lights so that they don't have to turn the lights completely on and off on the Sabbath. They just leave them on. And in the restroom, there might be a neat little pile of tissues available so that you don't have to actually tear the toilet paper on the Sabbath, because that's forbidden. And um, in Israel, uh, the elevators in the hotels, they, on the Sabbath, they automatically stop at every floor so that you don't have to press the button, because that's operating electrical machinery on the Sabbath. Um, so you can see that uh, some of the laws were very helpful. Um, but some kind of got away from the original intent um, to make the Sabbath a holy time that was dedicated to God. You can see the zeal and the strictness with which they practiced the Sabbath. Thanks, Carol. What I, what I want to show you in that is this, is that it's easy to see in someone else's culture where they've taken religion and replaced God with it. And where, and where, um, you know, not tearing uh, toilet paper, for instance. She told me that in the office. I was just, 
I was in the office this week. I said, Carol, help me understand from a, from a Jewish person's point of view this whole deal with Sabbath. Because I didn't, I didn't grow up with that. And she just began talking. I'm like, our, our church just needs to hear this. I mean, what happens is God gives us something and we can pervert it and turn it into lifeless religion. Guess what? We do that here in America just as prevalently. Church attendance. Bible study. Awana. Memorization. Good deeds. All of that can be lifeless religion that has zero power to, to change you, zero power to overcome sin, and zero power to save you on Judgment Day from God's wrath. All of that is works. So what happens is we see that in someone else's culture and we go, oh, that's nonsense. How did they miss the very words of God? We do the same thing. And I just wanted to get that where we always, it's always easy to kind of point at the Pharisees and go, man, they just really missed it. Um, all right, here's the, here's the uh, next one. Jesus is saying that he's equal to God in his works. Now, this is just classic. If you understand this picture of works, on the Sabbath, look at what Jesus says in verse 17. Okay, back up to 17 for a second. My father is always at his work. Remember how big a deal it was that you don't work on the Sabbath? And it's a really big deal. We're going to push every single button on the elevator on Sundays because, or on Sabbath because, because we don't want to have you work. Well, Jesus responds to this. You violated the Sabbath command. Here's the words he says. My father is always at work. To this very day, and I too am working. You see how now the word working and work become inflammatory kinds of comments? He wasn't taking the politically correct route out, diffusing the conflict. He was turning the heat up on the conflict. Going right for the jugular of what they were really offended about. And all of a sudden, he also, by the way, is saying that he's, the, he's equal with God in person. And now he's saying, I'm equal with God in his work. Look at verse 19. Jesus gave them this answer. I tell you the truth, the Son of Man can do nothing by himself. He can only do what he sees the Father doing. Because whatever the Father does, the Son also does. For the Father loves the Son and shows him all he does. Yes, to your amazement, he will show him even greater things than these. I've had, I've had these words bolded on here. I know it's hard to see, but the words nothing. He can do only what he sees the Father doing. Because whatever the Father does, the Son does also. Those are all inclusive, 100% of the time, words. He is claiming very unique relationship to God. He is claiming to be equal with God in his works. He's also equal to God in His power and sovereignty. Look at verse 21. For just as the Father raises the dead and gives them life, even so the Son gives life to whom, it pleased, to, to whom He is pleased to give. Now this would have, again, just rocketed through the ears of someone who has grown up in a monotheistic culture like the Jewish nation was, contrary to some of the pagan cultures that worshipped thousands of gods, much like in our day, the Jews were taught there is one true God. And now all of a sudden, a man is coming along and claiming equal with God in his person, equal with God in his works, and only God could give life and take life. And now this man is claiming to be able to give life. Obviously, it fired people up. This underscores the sovereignty of God. 
Whoever God chose before the foundation of the world to give to the Son will come to Him, and Jesus, He, will not reject anyone. I had one person who's, who's joined our church, and they, before they joined our church, they wanted to come and, and talk to me. He just said, hey, can I grab coffee with you? And I said, sure, let's go grab a cup of coffee. So over a cup of coffee, he wanted to ask some things about our church. And one of his questions was this. I think he phrased it something like this. How sovereign do you think God is? And I thought, well, that's an interesting question. And, and so I told him. And as we talked, he, he peppered me with some different questions. And, and halfway through the time, he said, I hope I'm not being too forward. or I hope you don't think I'm attacking you, but, but this is really important to me. And I just, I just said, man, you are right on to be as the head of your household, owning up and taking responsibility for the spiritual well-being of your family and making sure that if you're going to get dialed in relationally to this body of believers, that we believe in the sovereignty of God, that we are theologically accurate according to the Scripture. I said, kudos to you for doing this and taking this step. Don't, don't, don't apologize for that. That is a great step to take. Before you get relationally involved as a family and then you find out, man, these guys are a bunch of whack jobs. We need to leave. And now, you know, daughter's in tears and wife is like, well, they have a nice... None of that. It's like right at the outside, before we even make this decision, I want to know some things about this church. I was just like, man, wait a man up and, and go and pursue that and seek that out. And he didn't do it in an attacking way. But he did it in a way that says, I want to know this. This is important to me. Jesus claimed equal to God in his power and his sovereignty. Uh, number four, God, uh, he claimed equal to God in his judgment. Verse 22, we read on. Moreover, the Father judges no one, but has entrusted all judgment to the Son. Because the will of the Son and the will of the Father were in absolute and utter perfect harmony, God gave all judgment to the Son. That's what the Scriptures teach. We're going to sit at a great white throne under the foot of Jesus on Judgment Day. He's the one who judges. God has given him this judgment. And there's no fear that the Son is going to go wayward from what the Father wills because of their unique nature and relationship. They're in perfect harmony. So as the Father would have judged, the Son will judge. And Jesus making these statements, He's just going boom, 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 boom. These five things are just... I mean, they're just knocking these people over. And we can kind of read through this and go, what's he talking about all this stuff? Judgment and all this kind of stuff. Judgment day is coming. Listen to 2 Thessalonians chapter 1. This will happen when the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven in blazing fire with His powerful angels. He will punish those who do not know God and do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. People think of Jesus sometimes as a little cute baby in a manger. As kind of a nice hippie who walked around and did nice things for, for good people. Who loved the poor. But really they think of Him as kind of wimpy. They kind of think of Him as a pushover. And the Bible teaches this. That when Jesus returns, and right now there is a sovereign being. And He's on a throne. And... He's to be feared greatly. Is Jesus all about love? Absolutely. But if you read about God's love and God's wrath in the Bible, guess what? There's a lot of the wrath of God. There's a lot to be fearful of if you're not on God's team. And that's the point of Jesus' judgment is to be aware of that. 
Fifthly is this, that He's equal to God in His honor. Verse 23, that all may honor the Son just as they honor the Father. He who does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent Him. I tell you the truth, whoever hears My words and believes Him who sent Me has eternal life and will not be condemned. He has crossed over from death to life. Isn't it only fitting that if, if Jesus, the Son, is equal to God in His person, in His power and sovereignty, in His judgment in His works, that He'd be equal to God in His honor? Back to this question we're looking at. Is Jesus God? Those who would say, no, He's close though. He's the closest to God ever, but He's not God. That tiny variance is a huge ordeal to the Bible. You'd have to rip out chunks of your Bible, large chunks of your Bible, crinkle them up, throw them away, and count them as irrelevant to make that statement because that's not what the Bible teaches. And it's imperative that we get that Jesus is equal to God. Now, really quickly, he goes on to this section about two resurrections, um, looking in verse, in verse 25. Um, and this is one of those sections I'm just not going to say a whole bunch about, but let me read it. It says, I tell you the truth, the time is coming and has now come when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God and those who hear will live. Verse 26, for as the Father has life in himself, so he has granted the Son to have life in himself. And he has given him authority to judge because he is the Son of Man. Do not be amazed at this, for a time is coming when all who are in their graves will hear his voice and come out. Those who have done good will rise to live, and those who have done evil will rise to be condemned. By myself I can do nothing. I judge only as I hear, and my judgment is just, for I seek not to please myself, but he who sent me. What's Jesus talking about? He goes into these two resurrections. And to be honest, it sounds a little bit like Night of the Living Dead-ish, like kind of Halloween-ish, like the dead are rising and walking around. It's like, whoa, what's that all about? Should we just skip that over because that's an awkward passage to talk about and describe? Here's, here's the things I, that I want to point out. And these are just overarching kind of, kind of principle sort of things. But to the age-old question of is there life after death, Jesus would say a resounding yes. That yes, there is more to this life than what we see. Um, the fact that people will rise and be resurrected, all people, is a reality. Some to, to a living hope, some to judgment. But all will be resurrected, meaning all people will live forever. Thirdly, those who trust in Christ for salvation will be spiritually resurrected and physically resurrected. Um, Jesus bringing life to the dead is the central theme of John. Once again, did you see the gospel that just kind of slipped out in verse 24? Hey, those who believe... That, that I'm sent from God will be saved. They'll pass from death to life. There's the gospel. We all know John 3.16. How about John 5.24? There it is. Memorize it. Think about it. Meditate on it. Jesus laying out the gospel there. Fourthly, this. Good deeds reveal the presence or absence of salvation, but they do not produce it. This is a dialogue I'm in with someone uh, via email right now. They're just checking out the church. They're doing exactly what this other person that I had just praised was doing. They're saying, hey, I'm reading this on your website, and what do you, what do you mean by that exactly? And, um, and it's this whole idea of, you know, are you saved by your works or are you saved only by belief? And so all through the scriptures you'd read and, and you'd say, well, you're saved by belief. It's not by works, so that no person on earth could boast that they somehow added value to the work of Christ on the cross. And you'd say, well, amen to that. But the other side of that coin is this. If I lived a life 
all the way up until my deathbed, and I'm 72 and I'm laying there, and my family's all gathered around me, and one of my own children has become a Christian and comes to me and says, Dad, are you a Christian? I want to make sure you're saved. I want to make sure you're going to heaven and be with Jesus. And I say, oh yeah, back at the age of 10, Billy Graham rolled through town. I walked a Nile. I filled out a card. I'm good. But the son, this man's son, thinks about it and says, man, I've never seen any proof whatsoever that you're possessed by the Holy Spirit. If you're possessed by a spirit, there's manifestations of that. Remember that from a couple books ago? If I'm possessed by an evil spirit, I go, watch this. My head spins around five times. You go, whoa, get away from me and leave my house. I don't want that around me. If I go through my life and I say, I'm possessed by the Holy Spirit. And someone who's known me my entire life, my children who've watched me my entire days, says, really? I never would have known. You know what? That person looking for assurance on their deathbed, they ought to be afraid. More than that, that fear ought to lead them to repentance and they ought to throw themselves at the foot of the cross and say, I believe in the person and work of Jesus Christ. So James talks a lot about this. Faith without works is dead. But I want to make this crystal clear so that no one walks out of here and says, oh, I guess I've got to earn my salvation. Here's the point that he's bringing up is that good deeds reveal the presence or absence of salvation they do not produce it. This church's model, one of the things we say over and over, is come as you are. Don't wait to get cleaned up before you come to church. Don't wait to get that one sin figured out, worked out, changed, overcome, before you come meet Jesus. That's completely inverting the process. You will never have life. You will never have power over sin, real power over sin, until you meet Jesus. So come as you are. The second part of that is this, though. Don't stay that way. We invite you to come as you are to this church, but we want you to grow. We want you to walk out of here a changed person. We want you to be a part of this family and us to be able to just see, man, you are becoming more and more like Jesus Christ every year that I know you. Praise God for His work in your life. And that's what he's saying here. Very quickly, he goes on to point out these five witnesses. Jesus blasts them with saying, I'm God, I'm God, I'm God. He says it five times in five different ways. It makes it crystal clear to these people. They want to kill Him. He then goes to talk about the resurrection. And then He brings up these five witnesses. If you have your bulletin notes there, add Moses at the bottom. Moses got the axe somehow in one of the edits. And so you've got to add Moses back in. We've got to keep him. Because the Bible keeps it. We're not even going to take a lot of time with this, but you just go read verses 31 to 47. Each one of these builds on, on the other. And Jesus, it's great. Jesus acclimates to our way of viewing things. Do you know that one of these testimonies would have been perfect because it was 100% true? Just his own testimony about himself would have been perfect because it's 100% true. But instead of relying on that, he acclimates to what they would want. What they would want is this. Anyone who says something about them true about themselves doesn't make it true. You need the testimony of other people. That's a more base way of doing things because we don't trust one another. Sin's gotten in and corrupted our words such that it's not always true. So we need to, you know, figure that one out. And did you say that? And what, what's the real truth here? Is Jesus on trial? Here's what he brings up John the Baptist. 
He brings up John the Baptist as saying, here's another person saying it about me. It's not just me saying it about myself. That one that you called a prophet out in the wilderness, he pointed to me. He brings up this second thing of signs. They're more than just miracles. Because just I could just produce a miracle and go, whoopee! And the whole point of it was just to kind of do a cool party trick. Jesus' miracles were more than miracles. They were signs. What do signs do? They point the way, right? They point to something greater. They, they're, they're direction givers. And this is pointing to the fact that these works He's doing, these miracles He's doing, are not from the neighborhood. Right? People in Nazareth don't just pull that stuff off. These are pointing to a supernatural place. He points to the Father, the Word of the Father. He points to the Bible. Uh, he says this in... Um, look at verse uh, 39. 39 says, You diligently study the Scriptures because you think that by them they possess eternal life. These are the Scriptures that testify about me. He brings up the Bible. Now, their Bible in these days was just the Old Testament. The first part of our Bible. But he brings up the Bible as a witness for himself. One little side comment about this is this. One of our areas of replacing God with religion is we can actually take the Bible, kick Jesus off the top spot, and put the Bible up there. Rob asked a great question at the start of this morning. What's most important to you? Do you know that if your answer is the Bible, you're missing it? I mean, the Bible sounds pretty good. We've slapped the name Bible right on our sign out there because we want people to know this is, this is not just a church about God. This is a church about the God of the Bible. The Bible will inform and instruct what we do, how we govern, what we pay attention to, what we neglect, what the church is all about. This will inform all of that. But there are people who basically worship a book. And the second you do that, you've missed it. I had a pastor, I think in Mexico, I, I think that's where I just heard this for the first time, but he said something along these lines. He said, preach the God of the Bible, not the Bible as God. And I thought, man, what a great distinction. We don't want to just preach through a book of the Bible to say, whoopee, in 27 years, you know, we'll have gotten such, such and such far in the Bible. We want to preach the God of the Bible. I love the way the message translates verses 39 to 40. Just listen to this. You have your heads in your Bibles constantly because you think you'll find eternal life there, but you miss the forest for the trees. These Scriptures are all about Me. And here I am standing right before you and you aren't willing to receive Me the life you say that you want. And I go, Lord... Forgive us for ever getting on some kind of a track where we've got a million Bible studies, but we're missing you standing right in front of us, beckoning us out of Bible study into the neighborhood. Beckoning us out of our holy huddles, studying a book like this and going, Lord, we want the life you have. And all along he's saying, give your life away. Get out there and be a part of something that's changing the world. Bring the gospel to the neighborhoods. Don't just study about what went on 2,000 years ago. But he points to the Bible. The Bible points to Christ. It's unbelievable. Finally, he points to Moses. And what he's saying there is just pedigree, tradition, ancestry. All of that point to Christ as God. Is Jesus God? Yes. This fact will always be under attack, by the way. This is nothing new that the deity of Christ is under attack from 
uh, Da Vinci Code or from talk show or from some article that's going to expose something or whatever. That will always go on. And it started very, very early on in Jesus' ministry. Let's move on. Why does it matter? Is Jesus God? The answer is yes. Why does it matter? Here's the short answer. Because everything else hinges on that. They produce a, a, a body of Jesus and He's not God. Everything else crumbles. It all falls apart. What you've devoted your life to if you're a Christian is now a false hope, a false Savior. He's just one of a long list of fakes who claim to be God, claim to know God, claim to have divine knowledge, but didn't. Ephesians 1.17. Is that in your notes? Thank you. Ephesians 1.17 says this, I keep asking, this is a pastoral prayer, I keep asking that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the glorious Father, may give you the spirit of wisdom and revelation so that you may know Him better. Verse 18, I pray also that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened in order that you may know the hope to which He has called you, the riches of His glorious inheritance of His saints. His passion is that people would grow in their knowledge, not for knowledge's sake, not to puff it up, not so we can talk a great talk, but because knowing the fact that Jesus is God means that the hope that He offers is completely real. means that the inheritance we have as fellow heirs with Christ are waiting for us and are in fact present in us. Does knowing the hope and the riches that we possess change anything about the circumstances that you're going to face as you walk out of these doors today? No. Zero. The bill that you're avoiding is still sitting under the newspaper that you hid you know, under it so you didn't have to look at it this morning. As you drive by Arco, one of the cheapest Arcos in the valley is still going to be a lot of money. The, the strained relationship that you have with your roommate... The, the, the assignment that's past due at work or at school, it's all waiting for you. It's all still there. Your own struggle with your own failure, your own struggle with your temptation, the battle that you've... It's all there. It's all waiting for you as you walk out these doors. That's painting a completely illogical and untrue picture to say that that somehow changes your circumstances. Does knowing the hope and riches we possess change anything about our circumstances? No. But it changes everything about how we live through those circumstances. Doesn't it? If you walk out of here and you're convinced for the first time or for the hundredth time that God's on His throne, that Jesus' promises are true, that the hope that we cling to and profess and believe in, and it saves us, is a thousand percent true. It changes everything about the circumstances, doesn't it? Even the riches that we possess in Christ. I once went through all the things that we possess. Just read the Bible. The things that you and I possess as believers, as a part of God's family, is remarkable. And I don't put a smile on your face through any and all circumstances. Not in a goofy kind of weird, like, you know, I'm a Christian. Everything's good. And there's rage behind your smile. And it just gives people nightmares. Don't do that. What I'm talking about, though, is this inner joy. The Bible says it's a peace. It, it, it surpasses understanding. It's like it's unfathomable that you should be at peace right now. You ought to be seething mad and seeking revenge. And you just go, man, you don't get it. I've tasted of divine forgiveness. This is cake. And people will look at you and think, that's really weird. They'll even ask you about it. I want you to turn to Matthew 28. 
Matthew 28, Jesus makes a command and he sandwiches it in between a promise. And I want you to see these two promises because they're imperative for how you live Monday morning. This is right at the end of Jesus' life. He's about ready to, to depart. He's already risen from the dead. He's going back to his rightful place where he's been with the Father from eternity past. And in verse 16 of Matthew 28, he says, Then the eleven disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain where Jesus had told them to go. Don't you love just simple obedience? Why did they go to that mountain? Jesus told them to. Why do you come gather week after week? Jesus tells us to. He tells us to read the Scripture publicly. He tells us to love our neighbor. We just do it. That's what discipleship's all about, really, just obedience. Verse 17, When they saw Him, they worshipped Him. When they saw Jesus, they worshipped Him. These were good Jewish boys who had been raised to worship none other than the one true God. Isn't that a powerful picture now to realize that those who've been raised with all that tradition, all that instruction, all that teaching, are now worshiping a man? If he wasn't the God-man, they wouldn't be worshiping him. But in three short years, their, their entire world had been turned upside down such that they're worshiping Jesus. Did his worshipers view him as merely mortal and 300 years later someone voted to make him divine? Eh, not true. They see Jesus, they're worshiping him. That's a big deal. Here's what I want to get at. Verse 18. Then Jesus came to them and said, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. And surely I am with you always to the very end of the age. Do you know that our mission which is our very purpose of being on earth and our identity are wrapped up in the deity of Jesus? If this was a man and he was telling us to do this, I'm with you to the end of the age. What does that mean? He's dead. But this is God saying this. So our mission individually, my mission as a family, our mission collectively as a church, and broader, capital C church, the greater South Bay church, our mission and our identity, who we are, is totally wrapped up in this question one, is Jesus God? Why does it matter? Because our identity and our, our, our mission are, are wrapped up in that. Here are the two things that are powerful to look at. All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. That's Jesus talking. In light of what we just read in John chapter 5, don't you view this chunk of scripture a little bit differently? Oh yeah. There he says it again. All authority has been given to me. So here's what Jesus says to you. Here's the promise you can claim tomorrow when things get hectic. All authority over everything you see and experience and touch and understand is right here in the hand of Jesus. And Jesus says, guess what? I'm with you. Always. So all authority has been given to Jesus and Jesus is always with me. Doesn't that answer the fear question? The economy's going crazy. Yeah, it is. Jesus, what are you doing? What spiritual doors are you opening up? had a great conversation with the person who's cut my hair for 10 years. We both agreed. Putting your hope in finances is a lousy deal. He's not a Christian. He told me that. I said, man, you're preaching the gospel. <laughs> Just 
just missing a couple key components right there, but honestly, it just it opens up all kinds of conversation. But I just lost my job. That's okay. All authority has been given to Jesus, and you're His. He's with you. Follow Him. Listen to Him. Obey Him. He's got a plan for you. He's got you in His hands. What direction do I move forward? Well, is it making disciples? Is it teaching them to observe all that Jesus commanded them to do? If not, maybe it's the wrong direction. What should I do in this relationship? Well, will it help you make disciples? Will it help you teach people to observe all that, they, that, that Jesus commanded them to do? Not really. Well, then don't do it. I, learned, I heard a great dating principle from Steve Clifford this weekend. He said this. He said, young people, those who, of you who aren't married and want to be married, he said, really simple. You run hard after Jesus, as hard and as fast as you can following the Savior, and then you just look around and see who's keeping up. The problem is this, and this, is, this has caused me tears. It's to see someone, usually it's the gals, who are running hard after Christ, who God's doing an amazing work in their life. And what they do is they look around and no one's keeping up. And way back there is some kind of, you know, guy. And they're like, well, I guess I'll slow up and wait for him. I need a husband. And I've just begged and pleaded, don't do that. You keep hard after Christ. And when you see someone who's edging up, if they look remotely decent, start dating. I mean, just, you know, let's be real. It's, you know, but just, I mean, that's, that's a simple dating principle, okay? Yeah, yeah. Don't pull up. Don't wait. And so that's the message. That's the message. It all hinges on this. You parents, I've got to say one more thing. You parents who are, who are walking through life with your kids and, and you're trying to talk your teenager down from a breakup, you're trying to help your kid through homework, whatever it is, you know what? You're going through a hectic situation. You just blew your lid, whatever. You just stop, call a family meeting, call a timeout, and say this. We, we do this regularly in our home because we need to. We call a timeout. We all take a deep breath, and here's what we say. You know what? Right now, God is on his throne. Right now, Jesus has a time when he is going to be coming back, and he's going to set all things right again. Everything's going to be balanced and figured out. And you know what? The Holy Spirit is present right now, right here, in this situation, in our hearts, by faith, for comfort and for power. And so, God, that's what we want to focus on. Now, let's get back to problem number 24 of the math. Do you see how it just puts it in perspective? Now, let's get back to figuring out who's going to finish setting the table. I mean, whatever the little nuanced thing is, let's figure this breakup out. Let's figure this job out. Let's figure this bill out. Let's figure out this whole moving thing. Yeah, we've got to move. But you just pull back and you, and, you, and you view these things. It matters immensely. Very quickly, what does it mean for his followers? Um, in this passage, essentially, we are seeing uh, a, a prototype of, of how we'll be treated by those around us. If people treated Christ this way, uh, John 15, we're going to get to this in a bit, but Jesus says, remember the words I spoke to you? No servant is greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will persecute you also. So guess what? You start following hard after Christ, you will be challenged, you will be hated, you will be looked at with anger. Here's what I'd encourage you to do. Keep committing crimes, quote unquote. You know what Jesus' crime was? Doing good on the Sabbath. He broke the social norm. 
There's a social norm that's being ushered in with Prop 8. Wanting to change the whole definition of marriage. Wanting to take what the Bible says and what God instituted about marriage and say, let's just throw that out the window. Let's make that a social norm for people. And Jesus took social norms, even being preached in churches, and said, you know what? There's a, there's a higher work. There's a bigger thing that God's doing here. He wants to heal this person by the pool. So, we're called to continue to commit those kinds of crime. We're called to do this. What if you as a Christian person knew of someone who was going to commit an abortion and you just volunteered. You said, look, I will take your child in. Let's, let's figure this out. I'll provide an, an alternative to the decision you're about ready to make. But that would really mess up my comfort in my life. Yeah, probably. And it would save a life. What if you began to take some of those? You know what you would do? I'll, I'll tell you what's happening right here in this room. Already, those kinds of issues begin to get people's blood going a little bit. And then you start asking the question, is that social norm? Or is that really what God says is true? And it's an eternal truth for all of time. When you start to take stands, when you start to stand up for Jesus, when you start to pursue Him in this way, you will be attacked. You will have people that will go from getting ticked off at you a little bit to wanting to physically assault you, to wanting to ruin you and everything about you. A little snapshot of this is a time I was taking a public speaking class at West Valley College. I was a freshman. And we were, we were told to have, we had an assignment to, to teach someone how to do something. And you had to, sort, you had, you had to cite three sources. So most people you know, gave meaningless speeches about how to make a peanut butter jelly sandwich and whatever else. Now, mind you, I was going to go be an architect. I wasn't going to be a preacher. I wasn't going to be in the ministry or any of that. But it was really clear. You know what people need to know how to do? They need to know how to become a Christian. So that's what I gave my speech on. They want three sources? Cool, I've got a ton. Here's Paul. Uh, so I just preached. I just got up and preached. That's all I did. And um, I, I, did it in, I did it in a humble way. I did it in a prayerful way. I said, God, I really want this to be for them. And I had, I had one person that came to me afterwards on the positive end. <clears throat> super old dude. He was like 30. And... Uh, and he said this, he said, I want to tell you, I've lived, I've basically lived the rock and roll lifestyle. I've had everything this world can throw at me. I'm wealthy beyond your wildest dreams and I go to a junior college. I've never, ever heard that message. I've never seen that kind of conviction in someone. He said, do you go to church? I said, I do go to church. He said, can I come with you? I said, sure. So guess what? I picked him up and went to church. Now, the story with him he, he, he didn't dramatically get saved in the first two weeks. But God used that opportunity for good. You know what the negative was? I felt there was a girl, sorry Amparo, but she was sitting right about where Amparo is sitting. And you know what was happening? As I was speaking, I've, I can remember her face like it was, she was a sweet girl. I and mean, I just remember her kind of through the, her eyes were boring holes into me and she was angry at me. She gave me a look that said, I don't want to. This, it's like everything inside of her to just keep her mouth shut as I'm preaching the gospel to her. I went away from that time going, whoa. 
This whole thing I've been taught from the time I was a kid that we're in a spiritual battle, it just played itself out right here at West Valley College. One hated me and gave me a look that today I could reproduce it in my mind because it was demonic. It was like, no, don't you dare say that. And another person said, man, that sounds like life. I've got to have that. I've got to find out more. The implications for his followers that Jesus is God that everything matters and hinges on that, is that you will be persecuted. This last verse I have up here is this, but in your heart set apart Christ as Lord. Always be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks you to give the reason for the hope that you have. But do this with gentleness and respect. These aren't in your notes, but I want you to write these down. I just want to give you three steps in closing, I know we're over time. I told you this was a big passage. Bear with me. We're almost done. These are some steps to write down. First, lay down your defense and surrender yourself to God. That's step one. The start of this verse says, set apart Christ as Lord in your heart. It's a heart issue. You can go around spouting gospel truth and not be a Christian. Settle the heart issue first. Do this for your king. Do this because you're a subject in a kingdom that's already here and is being ushered in. Not because it's somehow the right thing to do or it's going to get you to heaven. One translation reads verse 24 this way. It's urgent that you listen carefully to this. Listen for the gospel in this. Anyone here who believes what I am saying right now and aligns himself with the Father who has in fact put me in charge has at this very moment the real, lasting life and is no longer condemned to be an outsider. This person has taken a giant step from the world of the dead to the world of the living. That's John chapter 5, verse 24 in the message. That's the gospel. That's what we're preaching. Set aside, set aside Christ as Lord. That's the first thing. Secondly is this, prepare be able to defend what you believe, why you believe, what the hope is that you have, what riches it is that you have. By the way, your, me- your message better be backed up by your life. If you say, I have, I have the power to overcome my circumstances because of the riches of the peace of Christ that I have, and you're the one freaking out most in the office about potential layoffs, you see how those don't jive very well? That message and that lifestyle, they just don't jive. And so it strips any power of the words that you say. Some people say, yeah, actions speak louder than words. I would agree with that. Actions speak louder than words, but words are more clear, aren't they? The Bible says that faith comes by hearing. And so we ought to be spouting off the gospel. We ought to be spouting off truth. We ought to be communicating it with words and deeds. Thirdly is this, live with others in mind. Spouting off has a negative connotation. I get that. This last part of this verse is fantastic. But do this with gentleness and respect, is what First Peter says. Be ready to give a reason for the hope you have to anyone who asks, but do it with them in mind. Don't do it so you can win the argument. There are times that someone will come to you, they'll have, a, they'll have an argument that's so full of holes about the deity of Christ. And you're like, oh man, I'm going to blow this dude out of the water. I just came from church. Well, here's five things he said equal. And here's five witnesses. And 
whoa! The person just gets blown away. Guess what? You won the argument. Big whoop. They're left going, what a proud, pompous Christian. I want nothing to do with that guy. What if instead you're saying it for the benefit of them? And so you just pray really quick. Here's what happens all the time. Lord, I need words right now that they need. Not that I know. I don't want to spout off everything I know. God, right now, help me to know how much to to lay into this and how much to just ease back. It's always with them in mind. I want them to see you. Let that happen right now is the words I'm saying. And those are just moment-by-moment prayers that you're doing. Some of you go, man, no one's ever asked me once about the hope that I have in me. I'm not even going to give you a bunch of principles about that one. Just figure it out. That's a problem, isn't it? Christ had every opportunity to kind of back away, take a step back, be a little bit politically correct. Uh, you know what? Sorry, I forgot it was Sabbath. I'll heal the next one on the, on the following day. Instead, in, in, in line with the will of God, he ratcheted up the confrontation. Wasn't afraid of it. Knew exactly why he was here. 1 Peter 3.15 is an awesome verse to memorize. I want to invite the band up right now. And as they do, I want you to close your eyes. I want you to bow your heads. And this morning, I hope we're not more enslaved to a clock, to a lunch date, to something else, than we are to how important I think this is that we're reading here in this passage. I want to invite you right now to think back on what has just been heard and look at the Scriptures. We're going to close with one song. We'll be out of here soon enough. But I would be a fool to not take the opportunity right now and to lay out blatantly and boldly that if you do not have your heart set right with God then today is the day. We had a guy get baptized last week, two weeks ago. Quoted a verse from James. If you know the right thing to do and you don't do it, it's sin. Don't wait. Don't procrastinate. We don't know what tomorrow brings. Today, yield your heart, surrender your heart to God. Turn over control of your life to God. Trust in the person and work of Jesus. Father, we thank you for sending the Son. Jesus, we thank you for being obedient. Obedient all the way to death. And not only that, but a shameful death. So that us in this room who know you, have placed our whole hope, all of our eggs in your basket, can know beyond the shadow of a doubt that we've stepped over from death into eternal and everlasting life. We praise you that you're on your throne right now. We praise you that by the power of the Holy Spirit, you are with us always in everything. And God, I pray that our lives would be merely a reflection of the life change that has gone on in us. We proclaim you proudly and loudly and yet with others in mind that Jesus is God. And He rose from the dead. And in that, He's conquered death and the power of sin. And that's why this morning, we pray in the name that is above every other name, 
and a name that everyone will bow to willingly or later on unwillingly. And that's the powerful name of Jesus. Amen. Why don't you stand up and we're going to sing a closing song and then we will dismiss. Thank a child worker today, by the way.